Our scripture reading today is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Logan, for reading that passage for us this morning as we continue making our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, I wanted to give you just a sense of um, kind of the main idea, the main application, the main point of this sermon that I want to encourage us all with. Um, and it's, it's so basic and simple um, that it's, it's kind of the heart of what a pastor really wants people to hear. And it's this. Get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus. If you already know Jesus, continue getting to know Jesus. Spend time with him. Spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time journaling. Spend time in the body of Christ, in Bible study. Spend time getting to know Jesus because it is the path to freedom. And it's the only path to freedom, to true freedom. Just get to know Jesus. So let me talk about that for 25 minutes or so. It is mid-October. It's a strange time of year when there's a lot of things happening in the world of education, fall breaks, things like that. We're entering into a holiday season. We are in a fascinating time of, of sports, maybe, a, maybe one of the best seasons for people who love sports because the NFL is underway. College football, I guess, is happening. Um, I don't, I don't know. And then uh, it is also, we're in the midst of playoff baseball, which is the best thing in the world, um, baseball. I love, love, love baseball. I am a St. Louis Cardinals fan. And uh, so that means that my team, uh, after one of the most magical and romantic half seasons of baseball that I can remember, uh, were swept in the wild card round by the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, we didn't beat ourselves, they beat us. That's how that worked. But I love this game. I love this game on a visceral level. There's a, uh, if I can use this word in a context applied to sports, there is a sensual beauty to baseball. And what I mean by that is 
there's a perfection to it, to the things that are that are that are used in the game. There's there's a, a field that is perfectly cut, the grass. The infield is perfectly uh, laid out. The 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 everything is measured. All of the distances are measured. There's the stadium that you walk into, which is this 360-degree wraparound of two teams, these 360 degrees of fickle scrutiny by ticket holders who find $5 for a hot dog a bargain because a hot dog in a baseball stadium tastes different than a hot dog anywhere else. And I love it on a philosophical level, too, baseball, because here's a game that is a lot like life. Somebody the other day said, I don't get it. Nothing much happens. Exactly. (laughs) It's a lot like life in that sense. When you succeed, one-third of the time, you are one of the greatest to ever play the game. When you are playing the game of baseball, you cannot single-handedly win a game for your team. But you can single-handedly lose a game for your team. I love that this is a game of stats that take place over more than 100 years. I love that the outcome of a baseball game can't really be described as a score. It has to be told as a story. And I love that about baseball. There are also no clocks. Now, baseball players can be a superstitious bunch. And that's really what I wanted to kind of highlight here. Now, they play 162 games over the course of seven months. That's a lot of baseball. There's no other sport that plays that many games in a season. 162 games in a season over seven months, only a few days off. Most of those days off are devoted to travel, traveling around the country. And baseball is a game of consistency. And because it's a game of consistency, players develop habits to help with their consistency over that stretch of 162 games. Many of them develop habits to preserve their consistency, habits that are done off the field or not really in as part of the game in order to have certain consistencies and routines that happen on the field. So here are some of the superstitions that baseball players, some of them have. Uh, Players will refuse to wash their hats, their helmets, their uniforms themselves during a winning streak. They don't want to mess with what's working. There are many players who will never, ever step on the foul line uh, when they're coming on the field or going off the field. Never. They won't touch it. Uh, There are many hitters that when they get into the batter's box, they will draw a symbol in the dirt in front of the batter's box prior to their at-bat. You can see them them do this, and they'll do it the same way every time. Here's one that's sacred, is when there's a no-hitter going on or a perfect game, nobody talks about it while it's happening. You don't even look at the pitcher, you don't strike up a conversation, you leave them alone, and you never 
never talk about the no-hitter. Now, here's some that are, that are um, things that individual players have done. Joe DiMaggio uh, was an outfielder. He would always run from the outfield and he would touch second base before going into the dugout every time. Hall of Fame third baseman Wade Boggs would take exactly 150 ground balls as practice. Not, not 149, not 151, 150 exactly every time. My personal favorite, because I can just see it and it makes me smile, is a pitcher named Turk Wendell who used to, <laughs> he used to wave from the pitcher's mound to the center fielder, who would then wave back at him every time he took the mound. Part of his routine. <laughs> Some players believe that superstitions like these have a direct influence on wins and losses in the game. And while they may, like psychologically speaking, help establish routines that help the players find consistency over a long season, these things don't impact the outcome of a game. Recently, the St. Louis, St. Louis Cardinals pitcher Adam Wainwright, he was, he was mic'd up um, during a rain delay, and as the delay was ending and they were getting ready to resume, he warmed up, he went back to the bullpen to warm up, and as his mic was on, he used that as an opportunity to talk to young pitchers while he was going through his warm-up routine. And here's what he said, I love this. He said, routine is great as long as it doesn't become superstition. If you're out there thinking you gotta do exactly the same thing every time to have success, that's making you a weaker competitor. If they told me right now I had eight pitches to get loose, I could do that because you are what your brain tells you you are. Baseball. Routines can be good. I love, I love a good routine. I love a good routine. They can be good as long as they don't become superstitions. And this is especially true when it comes to following Jesus. It's, it's really another way of talking about karma, really, if you think about it. It's this idea that if I do X, Y has to follow, or Y should follow. Y will be the proportional response to X. And so we can laugh about silly things that baseball players do, waving to their outfielders before they throw a pitch, but what about the karmic ideas that Christians hold today. This, if I do X, God must do Y. I'm convinced that everybody in this room, to some degree, has this. We have these things. Some examples would be, if I do my devotions, God will give me a good day. And if I do them every day, God will give me a good year. Conversely, if I don't do my devotions, God's going to give me a bad day and I'm going to deserve that, right? Or if I, if I keep a, a cross in my pocket, it's going to keep me safe. Or if I send my kids to a Christian school, God will make sure that they grow up following Jesus and reflecting well on me. There can be value in these things. But to what degree are we looking at them as karma? If I do this, this has to be what God does in response. What I want to do is I want to focus on today's passage as it relates to karma, 
superstition, what have you. And I want to look at it in two parts because that's part of what Paul is addressing with the false teachers. I'm using words of our era, karma, superstition, but Paul, Paul isn't using those words, but it's the concept that's in, in play here. And so we're going to look at it in two parts, verses 19, uh, 16 to 19, the first part, in which Paul explains what these false teachers are saying and how to respond to them. And then verses 20 to 23, in which he gives a rationale for why we should respond in this way. So in verse 16, he says to the church, don't let anybody judge you when it comes to food, when it comes to drink, when it comes to the observance of festivals and holy days. Don't let anybody judge you there. And what he's telling us is the false teachers were here, they were advocating for adherence to things like a kosher diet, observing the holy feasts that the Jewish people observed in the Old Testament, and saying these things are essential for your Christian spiritual growth. You must, if you want to grow, you have to do these things. And then in verse 17, Paul says, no, these are just a shadow of the things to come. The real substance of your spiritual growth and mine comes through Jesus. It comes through Jesus himself, who is our head. And then in verse 18, he follows up, follows up with another warning. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you from fellowship. In other words, what he's saying is one of the things that the false teachers are doing is they're encouraging the church to disqualify people from fellowship based on what they do, what they do externally. And so we see this agenda here is to separate people by promoting disassociation. They're promoting disassociation from others through things like keeping a kosher diet, following certain traditions that, that were part of the Old Testament, and, and seeing these as the path to spiritual flourishing. And if people won't get on board with that, then you just regard them as not belonging to your fellowship anymore. Christianity doesn't exclude people based on diet and tradition and things like that. Christianity welcomes people into the flourishing that we were created for, which is made possible by the finished work of Christ. And so this idea of disassociating the false teachers had, it really was promoted in two kind of ways that Paul mentions here. He uses the term, you saw it go by, um, as Logan read, asceticism and the worship of angels. These are the methods of separating yourself from other people, asceticism and the worship of angels. Let's look at both of those and let's start with the second one, the worship of angels. Let's just talk about that for a minute. What is this about? What does the worship of angels mean? We have corollaries to this today, um, but it really, it, I think we should take it at face value. What Paul is saying is, is this idea that there's this illusion, it's an illusion to calling on angels to intervene and protect them from evil spirits. In the same way that a person might knock on wood today to keep something bad from happening, or in the same way that somebody might bury a statue of St. Joseph in their yard when they're getting ready to sell their home because he's the patron saint of real estate. People do this, right? You, some of us live in homes where there is a statue of St. Joseph buried in the yard somewhere, right? Maybe a lot of us. I don't, I, don't, I don't know, but that kind of thing happens, 
right? But that's what he's talking about with angel worship. In other words, it's this. It's a warning against talisman. It's a warning against superstitious pleas to outside forces or objects to protect us from harm and to give us blessing. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a superstitious plea to an outside force. Asceticism is kind of the other side of that coin. It is a superstitious appeal that is turned inward. So if the worship of angels is turning outward with our superstition, asceticism is turning inward. It's this idea of disciplining the flesh to obtain a spiritual outcome or a material desire. And asceticism has been around for a long time. Some, some historical forms of asceticism include things like self-flagellation, uh, you know, beating yourself. That continues today in a, in a myriad of ways. Uh, fasting is another one. Celibacy. Seclusion or cloistering yourself off from others. A renunciation of worldly possessions. Obsessive exercise. Body modification. And in some extreme case, cases, religiously motivated suicide. These have all been historical forms of asceticism. And here's the thing about that. You may hear that list and think, Ugh, I don't want any part of that. It, it, it can be a really powerful influence. Because when people come along claiming a connection to the spiritual realm through practices like these, it can be very persuasive to people who have a deep desire to be connected to the spiritual realm and no better alternative for being connected to the spiritual realm. And so we can come with a posture of saying, be my guru, show me. Show me how you get spiritual clarity. And if doing this thing gives you, if sweat lodge is what I need, and you're telling me I'm gonna get spiritual clarity there, then okay, then okay, I'll do that. Because I don't have a better alternative. And Paul is saying, you do have a better alternative. You actually have the way to peace, Jesus. In verse 19, Paul goes on and he says, these teachers, they're, they're puffed up in their own minds. But what they're not doing, he says, and I love the picture he draws here, is he says they're not holding on to Christ who is the head that holds all things together and gives us growth. And so what he's saying is there are these teachers, these false teachers, and we see it still today, who promote a form of spiritualism that centers on what we do. I'm going to go have some kind of experience. I'm going to go do some kind of exertion. But that's all it requires, and Christ isn't in it. It's, it's a headless spirituality. That's the picture Paul gives, you know, where we look and say, those are impressive appendages, but there's no true head. There's no object to this faith. It's a, it's, a, it's a body without a head. It's more about the superstitious idea of if I do X, then I will get Y. And Paul says, don't, don't be taken in by that because it's a trap. Don't be taken in by this sort of spiritual rigidity that counts everyone as either an insider or an outsider. Because the goal of it is not to be saved. The goal is not to be sanctified, made holy, made more like Christ. But the goal is just to be counted on the right side of things. 
to be blessed by doing X. And then we get to verses 20 and 23, and we come to Paul's rationale for why we should avoid the self-won attempts at spiritual peace. He says, if you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the age, why do you or why would you still submit to empty rituals and rules about what you can eat and what you can drink and what you can touch? Because all of those things perish. Superstitions can masquerade as spiritual insight, but they're empty, they're hollow. There's nothing there. And then in verse 23, he says, to the world these things look like spiritual connection. They look like wisdom, but they are of no value in stopping, this is where it gets interesting, they're of no value in stopping the very thing you do them to avoid, and that is the indulgence of the flesh, because they are, in a way, indulgences of the flesh. One reason it doesn't work is because it presumes that our flesh is the problem. That's what the ascetics would say. Your flesh is the thing to overcome. When in truth, the gospel is profoundly body-affirming. Like when we read about our future, when we read about our eternal destiny, what we're told is that we will have resurrected bodies, which scripture says shall be glorious. Our bodies are not the problem here. It's our relationship with Jesus that deserves our attention. Christianity as a religion, as a faith, as a practice, is not a new set of rules. It's not a new set of superstitions. Christianity is a new way to be human. It's a new way to be human. I'm borrowing that phrase from John Foreman from the band Switchfoot, but it's a new way to be human. It's a fulfillment of an ancient religion, and that ancient religion was filled with laws and feasts and ceremony and dietary regulations, but all of those things were designed for a purpose, and their purpose was to teach God's people about his holiness and about his faithfulness and about his atoning grace, which we all need. And all of these traditions and customs were meant to kindle inside of God's people a longing for the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. It's just like when we go to the communion table. As the communion table is meant, to, is meant to arouse our appetites, these ancient customs were meant to do the same thing. They were meant to anchor God's people to the reality of his holiness and their inability to lead righteous lives. And these feasts and these customs were meant to keep God's people looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah while showing them their ever-present need of him. And Paul is saying, Christ has come. He has fulfilled the covenant promises. We don't need to look back to these traditions and these dietary regulations. We look to him. 
and we need look no further. Our inclination is, return, is to return to the old methods of reassuring ourselves that we're okay. That's what we want. We just want to reassure ourselves that we're okay. Whether that's through the indulgence of appetites or the denial of appetites. There are so many, if you've spent time in the New Testament, you know this, there are so many passages in the New Testament where the writer is devoting time to explaining that the old traditions, kosher diet, circumcision, feasts, are no longer required. There's lots of content in the letters of Paul and others in the New Testament about this. They're no longer required. Why? Because they've been fulfilled or they've been replaced with a new way of living because Christ has canceled the debt of sin. He's canceled it. And we see it happening in this passage in real time because here you have a young church, a young church that is seeking to walk in the confidence of the cross. And false teachers come along imposing a bunch of rules again for how to do that. And Paul is confronting the false teachers because their message is just another way of saying you must bring a measure of your own holiness to Christ to really find redemption. You got to meet him halfway. And that is not good news. Because you and I, we can't. We don't have it in us. We don't have any righteousness to bring to Christ. All of our righteousness, scripture tells us, is considered filthy rags. Consider what we're saying about God if we're saying we meet him halfway with our righteousness and his. It's hopeless. But this passage is teaching us that living a life of chasing after self-denial, empty ritual, or superstition, it's going to enslave your heart. And it's going to do it even as it fails to deliver the one thing it promises, righteousness. In fact, this is why it will enslave you. Because you won't ever reach the thing you're after. You won't reach what you went into it for. So you will just be stuck in it. Superstition and ritual may look like wisdom, but in the end, it is foolishness. It is a pitcher standing on the mound, waving at an outfielder for God knows why. The gospel calls us to a new way of living, to resting on the finished work of Christ alone for our righteousness and for our spiritual peace. It's not about embracing a better set of rules than other people. It's about yielding to Christ as our Lord and as our head. It's about submitting to him. So spend time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus in his word. Get to know Jesus. It's the path to freedom. Yielding to Christ. In him we are already out from under the tyranny of slavery once and for all. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage that gives us instruction and help for our time and it also gives us a window of insight into what was happening in the early church it's encouraging for us to see how similar we are
to a body of believers that gathered 2,000 years ago in terms of the things that we wrestle with, the things that we're tempted to be taken in by. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us to heed the call that Paul is giving the church here to trust in you alone, to rest in you alone. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.